Are you ready? Ready to release internal pain? To find confidence, clarity, and direction for your future? To live a life of meaning, fulfillment, and contribution? To trust your intuition again, but something's been holding you back? You've come to the right place. Welcome. I'm Ian Hawkins, the host and founder of the Grief Code podcast. Together, let's heal your unresolved or unknown grief by unlocking your grief code. As you tune in to each episode, you will receive insight into your own grief, how to eliminate it and what to do next. Before we start, I have one request. If any new insights or awareness land with you during this episode, please send me an email at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com and let me know what you found. I know the power of this work and I love to hear the impact these conversations have. Okay, let's get into it. Afternoon, everyone. And I have to say this every week, afternoon if you're in Sydney, but uh, wherever you are, I hope you're having a great day. It's uh, with great pleasure to introduce my guest today, John O'Sullivan, someone I met I think we're working out about eight, nine years ago. Uh, his work and his message had a great impact on on my life, on my coaching, sport coaching in particular. Um, John, how are you? I'm, I'm doing great. And full disclosure, if you're feeling like this is a late, it's not Ian's fault, it's mine. <laughs> my All fault. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> Yeah, like I said, most people are catching the replay, so <laughs> it won't matter. Uh, we're all good. All right, let's dive in. So just a quick quick story on on how I met John. I was starting my business in the sports space, but also it was just from my own personal experience watching uh, my young fella when he was five be so upset after losing in his uh, football soccer game and I just wasn't sure what that was. And then a bit of research and, and finding John's work to find out why that was happening was, was really powerful. So, John, maybe if we start there with how you got into actually doing this work and this, this changing the game project that you're so passionate mm-hmm. about. Yeah. Um first of all, yeah, I was, I was an athlete. I was a coach. I had coached on the NCAA division one level here in the States. I coached youth, got married, had my own kids, was running a youth sports organization with a thousand plus kids in it. And then all of a sudden, um, one day I was sitting on the sideline watching my daughter's team play when they were, you know, five years old. And, and next door, there's a 10-year-old game, and the parents are going berserk. And on my sideline, right, it's like everyone's laughing, having fun. The kids make mistakes, no big deal. And on the other sideline, they're screaming at the 12-year-old referee, and and they're yelling at the kids, and their coaches are yelling at everyone. And I'm like, man, this is a disaster. Like, who is anyone in my field thinking, wow, like, I want to I want to go there in five years. That seems awesome. Like, I can spend way more money and time and have my kid can have less fun. And so um, – yeah, that was kind of, you know, one of those moments like, can we help parents? Can we help coaches? And that's maybe one of the origin stories of when Changing the Game Project as an idea was born, or at least, hey, let me write a book to help parents, which then became a blog, which then became Changing the Game Project and everything it is today. 
but started yeah. a five-year-old soccer game just like yours <laughs> yeah wow hey john can you just pull that mic on the headphones off your jumper there is it clicking other side yeah yeah sorry about that yeah. uh let me uh let me think how to do that there's better a little, a little clip on the um on the apple headphones it should be able to slide up and join with the other one join with the other oh yeah one. yeah gotcha just do that yeah sorry everyone you'd think i did this for a living oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, very good yeah cool yeah that's it uh yeah so i think most people in Australia can associate with that, resonate with a, a situation where they've experienced that. Maybe they've been uh, involved in a game where that's happened. I, I know from people in the UK, similar experience. And it's it's something that uh, is it's a strange one because I think parents get so invested in their children's activities that they want the best for them. Sometimes that bubbles over into behaviour that perhaps isn't desirable for the best outcome for the child and probably not for the parents either so i know something that that you talked about that that a really big impact for me and i'd love you to talk more about it is that your methodology is about creating better trust between the coach and the child but also as importantly maybe even more importantly is creating that trust between the coach and the parent to get the best outcome for the child so maybe tell us more about how that works Sure. I mean, I always use the example of it's a three-legged stool. It's the athlete, the child, the parent, and the coach. And if you remove a leg, the stool is going to topple. And I see a lot of organizations or a lot of coaches trying to cut the parents out of it. And I see um, situations where the parents try to undermine the coach. And it's all just confusing for the child. And so this idea of that we all need to be connected, that we all need to trust each other, that we all have to have the best interest of the child in mind, that's really the key. And I think when we forget that, that's when things go sideways. And I mean, just just today, I had a conversation with a parent of a kid on my team, and I, I coach two youth soccer teams, the boys are 13. I have some kids that are, they're really tweeners, right? They're not quite there for the top team and a little too good for the second team. And so they fit in this area and they're 13 and they're growing and their, you know, bodies doing funny things. And, and yet, um, you know, I have to talk to mom. I have to talk to dad and say, here's where I see your son. I want to help him a minute for him. Here's how I think we can help him in this moment. What are you seeing at home? Do you have an older sibling who went through this? Uh, how did you get through that? When did it change? Just building trust, right? That that I'm in it for your kid. And, and these are great conversations. And because the parent, right, the kid comes home frustrated because they're not playing well and the parent sees it and they feel it and they want to help their kid. And, and you know, if your math teacher was like, you know, if, if my kid was fail, failing math and the math teacher was like, I'm not going to talk to you about that, right? You'd be like, that's crazy. I just want to help. And I think coaches, we're the same way. Yeah, absolutely. There's something that I remember reading. Well, two things come to mind. There's the cartoon, which I know is featured on one of your blogs, and it's like the child, the thought bubble. Uh, today, will I listen to the coach's instructions or to my parent yelling advice from the sideline? And uh, and I remember when you came and presented out here in Australia going to see you and you were talking about the impact of distraction and taking people 
through adults through a process which mimicked that experience for children. Tell us a little bit about that and the impact for a child when when they are trying to play and learn and develop the impact of all the noise on the sideline has on their um, learning and improvement. Well, first of all, it's not the least bit helpful, right? I mean, like cheering for your kid positively, letting them know you're there, that, that, that's fine. But, but coaching, kick it, pass it, run here, drive with it, whatever, shoot, that's the big one, right? Um, you, you, if you think of an invasion game like, like soccer, football, right, rugby, whatever it is, like in that moment, the, a, a player has to look what's around them, right, assess the situation, come up with solutions, pick one, technically execute it, assess their choice, and do it again, and do it again, and do it again. There's no time, actually, to receive input from the sideline and affect the choice on the ball. Sideline input might say, hey, pinch in a bit here when you're 50 yards from the ball. It might, it might say, you know, I'm curious what you saw, what pass could you have played there? But when the ball's at someone's feet to yell at them to shoot or cross or or try to alter their decision is pretty much a guaranteed recipe for a giveaway. And so, yeah, I do a little activity in with parents back in the day when we, uh, you know, got to get a bunch of people in a room and uh, we, we would, you know, I would just give them an example of that. And and what, what's it like when your your working memory is is overloaded um, and, and you can't function, you just slow down physically, you slow down. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Physically. So the mental strain puts a, a limit on your physical ability. That's really interesting. Yeah. The other thing that I remember reading in the blog was the study, and it was quite an extensive study about why children play sport. And it was saying that winning for children was so far down, was it around 60 or something? And what was most important were very different things. Yeah, I mean, there's been different ones, but it's certainly never in the top 10, right? And and yeah. so competing, if you lumped a bunch of things like working hard and being challenged and learning new things under the heading of competing, competing is high up the list, but winning is really, really low. And I think the younger the kids, the, you know, the quicker they, they get over it. It's usually us coaches and parents that can't get over the, the bad loss or, or whatever. You know, I, and I remember my daughter, you know, I, I get these, because I have my own kids, I get these constant like reminders to walk the walk, right. Not just talk the talk. And yeah. my daughter was nine or 10 and had her first, travel you know away tournament where the team went and stayed in a hotel and all this and so I, i'm just a dad on the sideline i go to the first game and psh, 10 10 nil they just get crushed and i'm thinking oh my god these girls are going to be devastated and embarrassed because quite frankly i'm embarrassed <laughs> and they walk over after and i said to my daughter hey how you doing sweetie everything okay okay and she says dad the hotel has a pool <laughs> love it. right and it's yeah. like okay let's go swim and and it's just like they're they're over it and so i, I think the the goal of sport ian right when kids step on the field they want to compete the goal the goal of the game is, is to win but the purpose is something so much bigger and and, and so much more important 
than did we win? And, and I think because we have confused the goal of the game with the purpose of sport, that's where we're really getting ourselves in trouble a lot. Yeah, that's probably uh, a great lead in to, to the conversation more about your story because I think in life we get that confused as well and we get stuck on the outcome instead of the purpose while we're in this in the first place. So I'll dive deeper into it, but just from you, where, where did where did this love of like, your purpose around actually having this impact as a coach, where did that purpose come to you and, and how does that play out for you now? Well, you know, it's certainly it, the realization of my influence wasn't something that I realized right away when I started coaching. It was a couple of years in when one of my first ever players called me up and he was now you know, done with university and he was applying to med school at the university that I was coaching soccer at. And he just, you know, he said, hey, I'm coming up for my med school interview and uh, I want to chat. Uh, you know, I'd love to get together and go grab dinner and everything. And this kid was a great kid. And I love this kid. I'm like, God, that's incredible. And he just said, you know, coach, I just wanted to say thank you. And I was like, well, well what for? And he said, you know, you, you last coached me five years ago, but every single time I'm in the weight room and I want to go, I think of your words and saying, oh, maybe I'll do another set. And when I was studying for my med school exams, I would think, is that your best that you got? Maybe you can do a little bit more. And he says, I want to say thanks. And that was the first time for whatever reason I realized that you mean like kids remember what we say? (laughs) Like like that this actually sticks. It doesn't just go in one ear and, and out the other. And, and man, maybe, you know, have I been intentional enough about this? And I got really scared because for, I knew at that point in my coaching career that for kids like that, that this was something positive for, I I wasn't always that person. And so I think that was the start of the journey when I was still like, Hey, I want to be a university head coach and I want to do this. Um, But that I realized coaching meant something more than how many games we had in the win column at the end of the season. And then it was just involvement. And I think having my own children, right. And now understanding trust, like, you know, I, I, you know, when I was coaching before I had kids and why wouldn't you trust me? Look at me. I am a former pro. I can kick a ball. I can do this. And it's like, this is the most important thing in my life. What does that have to do with anything? And I, I don't know. I didn't realize that till I was a parent either. And then I'm like, Oh, now I know what you meant. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, those things all came together for sure. And here I am today. Beautiful. Um, one thing I wanted to highlight was something that, that like I, when I talk about coaching in sport, just because you take the focus off the outcome of the win, it doesn't mean you can't be competitive. You can still be ultra competitive, but you're doing it in a way that, that for children it's actually going to work. And that's really focusing on some key areas. So, well, yeah. Well, yeah, let me just say, like, and also, that's how the best coaches in the world win the most. They're not, yes. you know, the press wants them to talk about, hey, we're winning, but you don't win by talking about winning, right? There's no secret formula that says, okay, guys, I went to this course and now I learned how to win. Like, it's about the process. It's about showing up every day and, and as we call it, right, win the day. Like, be fantastic in practice. Reinforce the correct behaviors. And if we do that, 
right? And we create a culture where we show up every day and we take care of ourselves off the field and on the field. And then in training, we compete like crazy and we get better and it's hard and it's challenging and it's exhausting. We hold each other accountable. And if we string enough of those days together and we have enough talent, we're going to win a lot of games. But we're certainly going to play the best we're capable of playing. But I think, you know, too many coaches talk about just winning, right? And and so often winning is not anywhere in your control, right? You don't control the referee, the weather, the field, your opponent. You play your best game ever against a fantastic opponent and lose. Is that a, is that a, a waste of time? No, not, not really, especially when you're a child. And so, you know, all my teams that I coach, every coach that I work with, we, we try to just talk about competing. And some of the coaches that I've gotten to interview on my podcast, they talk about competing. Compete every day, and you give yourself the best chance to win. That's really the formula right there. Yeah, absolutely. And you talked about some of the uh, like high-level people that you've spoken to as well, uh, like Steve Kerr, who's coach of the Warriors now, and um, you mentioned another MLS player that, or was it coach, and they said the same thing. It's all about bringing out the enjoyment of it. Otherwise, it doesn't, you're not, well, one, it doesn't matter. And two, you're not going to get the results. Yeah. I mean, in 200 plus podcasts now, we've interviewed, you know, close to, you know, half a dozen to a dozen professional coaches, two World Cup winners, um, you know, probably 100 national university championships. And they all say that. They're all about process and culture, process and culture. And, you know, if you get the culture right, you can screw up some a lot of other things. But if you get the culture wrong, you're, you're probably toast even if you get everything else right. And that that's really the formula. And they share it widely because they know it's hard because it's an everyday thing. And, and it's really intentional. It's about connecting with players and relationships and getting your staff on board and, and not being afraid to confront you know, behaviors that disrupt the culture and being intentional about who you bring into the culture. And um, it's hard work. So they share it. They're like, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, build a great culture. Cause if you're good at it, you're going to do really well. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you everything I did because it's not, there's no shortcut, right? There's no, there's no secret thing of like, Oh, look, we gave everyone the culture pill. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, that's just such a great, um, way of looking at it, creating that culture. And I guess if we look at that from a, an individual's perspective, it's it's what you're bringing to the table in terms of how you show up. It's like a values piece, right? And so for me, something like the work that you do is so important for a club. You, you can do all the technical skills and you can do all the, the other sorts of development, but it is really about bringing that culture. So from when, when you're a young footballer or soccer player or playing whatever other sports that you were playing, what was your experience like in terms of like, I'm sure that formed part of your beliefs around coaching. So what was that experience like for you? What was the culture you were immersed in? You know, I, I mean, I, I think I was really, I, I was lucky that I, I played for a lot of good teams with lots of talent players, far more talented than myself. And so the culture like it was never something we talked about. I never did a values exercise with a team or really talked about behaviors. It was just sort of it like, you know, the 
high schools I went to, the high school I went to was, you know, just, we were, were just fantastic and had wonderful players. And we had like, a, it was a real blue collar work ethic about us. And there was other teams in our league that maybe had more talent, but you know, no one came together at the end of the season better than we did. And, um, and it was funny because then my first year at university, team won a conference championship and i'm just like yeah this stuff's easy you know like it, 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 whatever and then it went sideways i got injured i missed my second year but third and fourth you know i i was a leader i was a team captain and we didn't do well and no one taught me to be a good leader and we never talked about culture and it, people were not bought in at all and it just wasn't it wasn't in, an intentional part of what we what we did every day. And then, you know, when I became a coach, I still still kind of left it to chance. You know, I still kind of yeah. left it to chance, you know. And, and it's funny, like even, you know, the pro team I played on, um, you know, we got off to a great start to the season and things are humming and we qualified in this cup and we've done all this stuff and – you know, it's easy when you're winning, but when all of a sudden you start losing, that's when your culture really like shows through. And we didn't really have it there either, you know, and I'm certainly would say I was probably part of the problem. <laughs> right. So, so um, I don't know. And it was funny because, you know, like I, I talked to, you were mentioning an MLS coach on our podcast the other day, a guy named Caleb Porter. And, you know, he's won collegiate championships and he's won two pro major league soccer championships here. And um, we, you know, we were talking about, you know, just the, his college coach, how important the culture was of this incredible program that he was a part of. And he's like, yeah, I, I learned that right away. And and I took that to my coach. I'm like, man, I wish I had that when I was 24. Because I, I just thought it was something that I, you either had or you didn't. Um, and, and never really realized this was something that uh, if you have it, it's because you put in the work. And if you don't, it's because you didn't. Yeah, and you also said that something really important where you said you, you, you were on your road to your own career. But when you went to coaching – what you didn't get shown was that letting go of the baggage of your playing career and, and, and overcoming the injuries and, and then being able to step into that place of actually becoming a coach. No one was teaching you that at the time. And I, no. I wonder no. how much it changed. I, I don't think a ton's changed, but there's people out there trying to change it. I, I would probably be one of them um, in that, you know, yeah, if you have unfulfilled dreams as a athlete, it's really hard not to try to live those dreams out through your kids, you know, through your players. I didn't win enough championships. So our 12 year olds are going to win championships, you know, and it's just, it's just not healthy. Right. And, and because it becomes very transactional, like what can you get me to get me towards my goal? Because this championship, this state title is whatever this is for me, not for you. Um, and, and so the good of that strength, I was passionate, I was competitive. I was all in like the kids, like whether they loved me or they hated me, they, no one said, John doesn't care, <laughs> you know, but overplaying that passion and that caring, you know, can become, you know, 
a thing that sucks the confidence out of kids and makes you think you don't believe in them. And so I think I'm a better coach today, far from a perfect coach, but a better coach because I can hit the pause button once in a while and be like, that did not come out right. Or I got to leave this kid alone right now. Um, so yeah. It's your uh, instincts get sharper the more you do it too. Like you said, there's no shortcut. There's no substitute for experience in that space. Yeah. So take me back to when you were a kid, because I know you mentioned something which, because I was asking, well, what, what, what were the sort of key moments in your life? And there was one that in the pre-chat we didn't go into, but you said when you were 15, you, you nearly died, probably should have died. So tell us about that experience. Yeah, and this is not one I, I, I talk about often, and it's not, you know, it wasn't one of those ones, you know, that I was on the operating table and saw the light and came back, you know, it was like, it was just like the chances of the universe. And so I, I kind of have to set the story up with, um, you know, I grew up in New York on Long Island and right on the water, and I was a passionate fisherman, as was my brother. And when I was about 15 or so, uh, I was a little older, a couple of years older. We we bought a little boat together, a 13-foot boat, and we'd, you know, outboard motor, and we'd putter around the harbor. So anyway, about two days prior to this, we had, like, our greatest fishing day ever in our little 13-foot boat. I mean, we caught huge fish and tons of them. And these fish, there was a fish in New York called the bluefish, and you swing them into your boat, and these were like 15, 18 pound fish and they're bouncing around. The blood's flying everywhere. They're spitting up fish and stuff. So the boat is trashed. Right. And so at the end of our day, we're just like thrilled. This is the greatest thing ever. And of course, my dad's like, yeah, congratulations, guys. Go wash the boat. Right. So so we, we go and we wash, wash our boat out, soap it, scrub it out. No problem. And there's a little drain plug in the back. Um, so we pulled the plug out and, um, you know, we've been, you know, we, we pulled the plug out, we drained the boat, we're done. Two days later, we're going fishing again. And that day, you know, we had followed this school of fish all around. We'd basically used up all our gas. So we're like, you know, borrow some money from dad. Uh, we need to go drive across the harbor to the gas dock. And so we, we carry the boat down to the beach, hook up the engine, we're putting it in. And the plug, well, oh, we forgot to put the plug back in. So trying to put it in, trying to put it in, and it won't go in because it dried out and it swelled up and whatever. So we're like twisting, hammering. The, the thing won't go in, but eight, ten minutes, you know, the same amount of time that we would have taken to drive over the gas dock. And I'm walking back to the house to grab my dad for help. He's an old fireman. He's 30 feet up in a tree cutting branches. And the whole entire gas dock explodes. There was a boat parked at it, and the guy didn't put on his bilge and his bilge uh, pump, and boom, bodies blown off the dock, burnt to a crisp, floating through the harbor, and and I'm just sitting there, and I was just close enough to the house where you know this explosion happens, and you've never seen someone descend a 30 foot tree faster than my dad, because he knew exactly where we were and he's a fireman and he knew exactly what happened. And I'm like, dad, it's okay. We're not there. And just the look on his face in that moment. And we ran down and, and, and threw the plug in and went out and like, 
I mean, there's bodies floating out in the tide and it was a crazy thing. And, and to this day, like I think of that moment, like why, why didn't I put the plug back in two days before? Why did we catch fish that day and get the boat messy? Why didn't we, why weren't we at that dock in that moment? And, and so I don't know, like, it's like one of those things of, of, I, I, I think in that moment, I felt like I had like a higher purpose for, <laughs> for being here because you hear these awful stories of like, why did that happen to that guy? You know, just, I mean, two days ago, right. Why did Tiger Woods go flying off a road? Like awful story. And you know, why was Kobe Bryant on that helicopter on that day? And, and for me, like that moment, at least until this point in my life, the universe, you know, press the pause button for 10 minutes and save my life and my brothers. Yeah. Oh man. I got tingles the whole way through that. I think, uh, yeah, sometimes we're just, we're not meant to go and, and things just unfold. But I think what I'd love to talk more about is that you talked about that higher power and you said that was really a moment that you started looking at life in a different way. So, so you're only 15, but did you start discovering new ways of looking at it immediately or it just created a curiosity that's continued on to, to continue to explore how you see the world? It's a good question. It's hard to remember, you know, back, back then, you know, I was very lucky in that my, my mom's father, uh, he was a, he was a professor, but he was also a missionary. And my mom actually like grew up in, in, well, Myanmar now, Burma back then left when the Japanese started bombing in world war two, um, was trying to come back on a ship to the United States. The ship, the convoy was attacked by submarines. They diverted to, to India. She ended up like just, you know, her mom walked off the boat in India with a couple of kids and whatever and try to and, and had to figure out a way to live for a couple of years. And and um, yet her, her parents always had this idea of like, you know, they were very religious and just like, let's do it. Like, you know, this is this is the will of, you know, God or the will of the universe. And and my and my grandfather was a big mountain climber. When I was a kid, he'd take me climbing mountains and he would always talk about like, you know, the mountains bring you out much closer to God. And I thought, you know, at that age, I thought that was a physical thing, but it was really a spiritual thing. Right. Um, So, so yeah, I I think I've always been a a spiritual person, if not attached to an organized religion. I mean, I grew up Catholic, but, but, you know, not that, but I, 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 I love the wilderness. I love um, the mountains. I love water. I mean, that's where I feel most spiritual in, in my life. That's how I hit my reset button. And, you know, wise person once said to me, which I have often requoted, I'd, I'd, I'd rather be in the mountains thinking of God than being in, be in church thinking of the mountains. So (laughs) that's kind of my philosophy these days. (laughs) I love it. Uh, Yeah, that's so great. So you go from this place of, uh, being an active child, soccer, skiing, you mentioned, and then you have a, a pretty horrific injury. And so talk me through that, what happened and, and how that changed life. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 
it's kind of one of those things that you see with a, a lot of athletes, like they never get hurt and then they have one. And then it's like the cascade effect. Cause your body doesn't recover. Or you don't do the right rehab or things like that. And, and so, yeah, I, I when I was, uh, uh, 17 almost 18 i i had the you know double leg fracture in a soccer match football match you know one of those ones that you you the announcers on tv are like uh you don't want to see this type thing you know and it was one of those and um didn't get the best medical care for it took a really long time to come back whole list of other injuries and just like you know, mess me up. But it, it was also this really interesting time because, you know, at first, you know, you're a 17 year old and you're like, woe is me. Life's not fair. Why me? And I remember my first sort of day getting fit for crutches and stuff and being in this, you know, whatever it was device room and there's people with no legs or one leg or whatever. And I'm like, well, okay. Like I'm going to at least get better. Right. That's not healing. Um, but I think that also, I mean, I'm a coach today and, and, and involved in sport because something I loved was kind of ripped away from me. And it really was at an age where, you know, a lot of kids, the sport experience is owned by mom and dad, right? It's, they're doing it for parents, just like religion, just like so many things or politics or whatever. And that happened at an age where, you know, it forced me to come with, if I'm going to do all the work to come back, I'm not doing it for anyone else except for me. Right. And, and so I, I owned it at that point and loved it and I missed it and fought through a lot of stuff to, to keep playing. Um, but yeah, I don't know, but you know, my mom, I mean, you know, you're, you're the coach here, Ian, you know, my mom says she still thinks something shifted in me at that time in my life of like this, um, like a loss of innocence in a way, a loss of like, you know, just a determination and, and that I just threw a bunch of stuff inside and, and said, I'm, I'm going to do this and I don't care what it takes. Um, I don't know. That's what my mom's pretty perceptive of things like that. Well, I, you know, I'd say she's very perceptive and I think that's true for all of these main incidents in our life they they do have a really massive effect on us and it's some of it helps us forge this forward journey where we're able to go and do things that previously we we weren't able to but there's also that residual stuff that hangs there and and it's like people don't usually associate grief with that sort of thing but there's an element of grief because you you said you had something that you were so passionate about and Mm -hmm. lost it and that's that's taking away from your life so that's why to me it's like we when we talk about purpose it's so important to look at what you've overcome because it helps shape who you are and helps you to be able to help other people um it's amazing how often when i speak to people and, and the the stories are intertwined i i when i was 20 same thing double leg fracture awful similar experience not the full rehab leading to more injuries and so on you said that sort of unfolded for you because you had a doctor who said I mean, I guess I feel I feel blessed that I did have amazing orthopedic surgeon that helped with that. But you said you had a doctor that afterwards he he passed away suddenly, and you had someone else who basically said, "Oh, you're good to go." Away you yeah. go when clearly you weren't. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like towards the end of, you know, getting out of, you know, months of a uh, hard cast and then into some sort of walking bracing, being able to kind of limp along on this walking brace with a cane and then without a cane and whatever, you know, you know, your leg, like one leg is normal and one leg is this little thin twig and everything. And, and yeah, this new doctor in my care, you know, just was like, it was sort of like right at the end of that, he's like, Oh yeah, you're good to go. You don't need anything. Like, and then uh, whatever I'm 18. Right. Uh, like, I'm not going to be like, Oh, can can I do PT? Like he didn't even ask what I did, who I was. He's like, yeah, you're walking, you're fine. And so I just try to jump back in it. And it was, yeah, it was, it was two years of misery. Um, because I never did. I mean, I never, you know, it's unheard of today. It's malpractice today. It's probably malpractice back then too, but it, you know, yeah, it was, it was an awful experience. And, Still to today, my leg's thinner. Like whenever I go to the doctor, like what happened to your leg? <laughs> so after you're going through this serious injury and you said like following injuries, you eventually get to play at a decent level beyond that. So how did that unfold and, and what was that experience like for you? Well, you know, so I played, you know, division one university or college here in the United States. And, um, I mean, I think, you know, I just did it through kind of pure determination, you know, right when I got hurt, I was just kind of coming into my own. I was a late bloomer, you know, I was, you know, I'm not going to do the metric conversions here, but I was, you know, a hundred pounds, uh, when I was in, you know, eighth grade and I was 170 when I finished high school. Right. So I like doubled, um, and, and, you know, I was just coming into my own as a player when I got hurt. And so then trying to get, get back to that and, you know, you have an injury like that, you're never quite as quick. So you gotta be a little quicker upstairs and, you know, you gotta make up for it in other places and and things like that. But I was never, I was never a great player, but I just, I just, I was really competitive. I, I, I wanted it and I was willing to, you know, to push through injuries and and push through pain and discomfort just to, to be a part of it. And I think, I think a lot of athletes will tell you like the thing you miss the most is you just love the locker room, right? You love the, the people and, and that love of just, you know, the camaraderie and, and the bus ride and all that sort of stuff. And that's what kept me connected to it for sure. And some of those people are still, you know, my great friends today, you know? So last time I was in Sydney, I saw one of them because he lives over there now. So <laughs> amazing, amazing. That's what drew, drew me back to playing uh, football again uh, last year. And, and I'll be doing it again this year because of that community element, which is just so important in our lives. Yeah, so, I'm retired. <laughs> definitely retired. Yeah, that's what I said too. <laughs> <laughs> so you go from that place, you, you, you played but really you start to get into this coaching space and you said um, you described it. You said you went to law school to become a coach and you were describing how there was this sort of um, to and fro because other people were saying, well, you need to be doing, you know, something more meaningful and you, you know, went to uni with people who became bankers and went on to bigger and better things. But for you, like coaching is what energized you. So how did you, how did you, continue to move forward in that space when maybe yeah, logic uh, plenty of other people important in your life were telling you that perhaps wasn't the best path 
It was the giant paychecks, man. No. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I have any of those tax returns from back there in the day, but there was definitely like plenty of days where I was like, okay, I got two packs of ramen noodles left. And uh, maybe if I can use my car to go recruit and get reimbursed for the mileage, I can pay rent this month. So like, yeah, you know, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I, when I was graduating university, I took the law school admission test and got into law school and decided, you know, basically I took the test that, you know what, no matter what, I'm taking a year off and I moved to an amazing little ski town called Vail, Colorado. And, um, about, uh, you know, I, so I deferred and, you know, no problem. And then when you got to sort of like uh, come back around and say, okay, now it's time. Are you coming? I was like, yeah, no, no chance. Like there's no, like there's nothing about law school that interested me at that point, you know, but like you said, right. You've got friends, you know, I went to a great university and they're bankers and, and, and they're in law school and they're doing all this. And, but it's funny because I just talked to a teammate like two months ago who who went that path. He was like a year ahead of me. And and now, you know, he's 50 and like me and he's he's done with law. He's burnt out. And he's like, I just like fizzled my whole, you know, that time of my life. And meanwhile, I was like playing soccer and, and, and skiing 100 days a year and, you know, living large. And I was like, I would never give up the choice I made. Um, but yeah, but there was like that little bit of like, but I think I love coaching. Right. And one of my teachers in high school became a principal of a Catholic school in North Carolina. And he said, we need a varsity soccer coach. And I had no qualifications except that I'd played in college, but he believed in me, you know, and, and thought that maybe I had something. And so, yeah, it's, it's brother Gary's fault. (laughs) Excellent. Well done. Thank you. Gary. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> who's still a great friend, by the way, and married my wife and I and everything. So I only say that in jest. Yeah, no, you know, I absolutely felt that. So you talked about that journey of like when you broke your leg and you were asking why me, and then you saw a different perspective of people with different injuries and so on. You said you actually had a real moment or a conscious decision where you actually, I love this sport but I'm going back to this sport on my terms. And I love that statement because I think that's something that we can all learn from and live by is that we do get to choose and we do get to to live life on our terms. So what was that? How did that sort of attitude take you forward and, and how does that play out for you now? Like what does that allow you to do? Yeah, I, I, I'm definitely a person who um, – doesn't always play nicely in the sandbox with others, you know, like I, I, I like, I work independently. I work quickly. <laughs> right. Yeah. I like to move forward. Um, I, you know, I, I can sometimes be a little bit impatient or a poor listener or things like that. Um, uh, but I, but I think it's cause I, I'm, I'm driven and I like building new things and I like creating things. And so, you know, you know, sometimes like I get to a place where, you know, kind of when I started changing the game project, you know, I, I had moved to, you know, the city that I live in now and, and gone to work for this, you know, little tiny football club with 250 kids. And it was a project, 
right? Can we build this? Can we do something great here? And I thought we could. And, you know, six years later, we had over a thousand kids and uh, we had four kids in uh, U.S. national team pools and we had multiple state championship teams, which we hadn't had before. And these like really good players and people were like, where are they coming out of? Like, where, what's this happening? And then I was bored. Like I was, I was burnt. I, I, I was, I didn't, I don't know. I felt like, okay, I've, I've built this. And now the, you know, you know how it is, Ian, like when the, when the politics or the problems are less than your passion and your purpose, you're fine. But when those things start to like, you know, it's just like being an athlete when, when the pain and suffering is less than your joy for sport, you're going to quit. And, and it was the same for me. And so I was just like, you know, I just, I, I needed to step away and, and then a couple of months later decided to write a book and here we are today. But, um, yeah, you know, I, I'm definitely driven. I'm, I definitely have self-belief. Um, I'm not afraid to start something new. Uh, I'd always kind of wanted to write a book and, and, and never knew why. And I think I took Ernest Hemingway's advice. Like if you're going to write, you better go live. And so, uh, and, yeah. and, quite live like him. But uh, um, yeah, so, you know, I, I don't know. I just think that, you know, who, who knows where I'll be 10 years from now. You know, I hope I don't get bored with this because I love what I do and stuff, but you, you never know. I'm not afraid to say what's next in life. Yeah, love it. Well, I'm I'm excited and looking forward to, to seeing what that is because I professional know professional fly fisherman. There you, you go. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> this is recorded so we can go back to this. <laughs> Very good. Oh, that's completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm picturing you in the fly fishing gear. Um so you go into this space where you go, I'm going to write a book. How do you, like, what's the process to suddenly go, I'm going to write a book? Like, how do you get to that point where you're actually just going to have the the courage or the determination just to start? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, you have to have something to say. And, 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 then, and then you just have to put pen to paper. And, you know, luckily I... I had quit my job, so I didn't have anything else to do except like, you know, my kids were like three and two. Um, and, and so, but yeah, I just did a lot of late night writing and, and like I said, I always wanted to do this and I felt like I had it in me and I started doing the research and it was part of me at that time too. It was like, I really liked public speaking and thought, Oh, maybe I can be a public speaker. Um, and maybe I'll be good at that. And so, um, so then if you're going to be an expert, well, you need a book. And, and so, yeah, so it, it was fun. I mean, I, I didn't, you know, I had done a master's thesis that was, you know, 140 pages. Like it wasn't like I hadn't done that before. Um, and I actually enjoyed the topic of my book much more than my master's thesis. So, <laughs> so uh, this was an easier thing to write. Um, but yeah, it, it wasn't bad. I mean, what, what's much what's much harder is like kind of when you get done and I was really open. I had an amazing editor and I was really open to working with her um, and she was great and helped me find my voice. But then you get this book and you got this thing, right? And and you have this thing that says, oh, I've done this. And then you realize that the only people who have bought it are related to you, you know, <laughs> and you're like, holy cow, like, how am I going to sell this book? 
And that's, you know, my publisher's like, well, you should start a blog. And I'm like, good, I like writing. I'll just write a little blog every week. And, and it was really the blog that kind of put Change in the Game Project on the map more so than the book um, because the blog became popular. And this is 2013, 2014. And this is the heyday of Facebook sharing, not ads everywhere. And, uh, and yeah, so the blog took off, which led to the TED Talk, which led to people finding out about the book and saying, oh, you'll come here and speak? Great. Like, let's do it. So. And is that a space that you enjoy as much as more than less than coaching, like being in that space, actually sharing your message? They're different. You know, they're, they're different. I, I miss, I mean, in this year of pandemic, I miss being on stage and I do it virtually and it's not the same. I miss going places, um, connecting with coaches, connecting with other passionate people, giving talks. Like that's a, it's kind of like an energy that you, I, I feel like being an athlete. Like when you go and you do something like that and you pour your heart and soul into it and at the end you're exhausted, but, um, but you feel you're fulfilled, yeah. right? Coaching doesn't give you that. Like when you coach um, a sport, like when that game's over your mind, you give yourself 10 minutes and then you're on to the next you know, you're on to the next game. Um, yeah. It's a different, it's a different type of, you know, fulfillment, fulfillment and coaching doesn't come from like, yeah, I nailed that fulfillment comes from the connections with the athletes and the relationships that over time, you know, fulfillment comes from me when downstairs on my refrigerator, I've got a wedding invitation, right? Like that is the fulfillment of, of coaching and the relationship piece and the connection piece. And I miss that, you know, when I started changing the game project. I walked away from coaching to do this. And then as my kids needed coaches, I started kind of easing back in and um, yeah. And what I really missed, you know, and I would get asked to do coaching clinics, right. And fly all over the place and, you know, run a session, but there's no connection with the kids in that session. It's not coaching. And then as soon as I coached a, a team again, I'm like, ah, this is what I miss. So, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I love that so much. You nailed it. The the, the coaching uh, buzz is from those relationships and those connections. And totally. if you're listening to this and you've come this far and you're and you're wanting to create more, then then I can't recommend highly enough this book and learning more about the work that John's done. Whether you're coaching young people or adults, because so many of the the ideas and and the culture you talked about still apply and it will help you to create a better connection. I, I, I just think that what you just described there might be as simple as, as some people need to see it in terms of what their job is as a coach. And or, think, or as a human being responsible yeah. for other human beings. I mean, it yeah. doesn't matter if you're a teacher or you run a sales team or run a company or whatever. I mean, people are people and yeah. you know what? They want to feel loved. They want to feel valued. They want to feel empowered. <laughs> they want to feel relevant. It doesn't matter if you're chasing a ball or, or you know, chasing your record sales. So um, I, I think this stuff is valid for everyone. And that's the beauty of sport, right? Like you can learn all that in sport and yes. then you're set for life. But so often in sport, <laughs> we forget all that stuff in pursuit of something, you know, really ephemeral and, and silly. And next thing you know, it's... You know, you get nothing out of sport. 
yeah, I think what you said there, yeah, you do learn so much from sport. And if we could carry it, those things in both directions, as you mentioned, I remember reading the forward to a book that had a big impact on me and it was talking about like live like an athlete, like walk tall, be confident, give direct and effective feedback, mm-hmm. whether it's positive reinforcement or constructive like things that need to be worked on. Like mm-hmm. that's how we get better and we're more encouraging and like we have those tough conversations and, and taking that to other parts of our life. Yeah, so, so powerful. So I know this is not the only book that you've written. So tell me more about some of the other work that you've done and some of the other messages that you put out there. So obviously the first book when you and I first connected was called Changing the Game. That was really for parents of how to, you know, help your kids in sport, uh, in, you know, a year ago or December of third, uh, December of 19, uh, I published one called every moment matters for, um, really coach specific on how to find your purpose as a coach, um, how to coach better, how's it feel to be coached by me? How do I define success? All that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, those are sort of, you know, big projects, but like I said, you know, my friend Jerry Lynch and I have this podcast called way of champions, which we're episode 206 or seven at this point. So that's showing up every week and, and <laughs> spitting out an episode, which is a lot of work. Um, and uh, yeah. And, and through that, you know, just get to talk to amazing people and uh you know, share ideas and, and become better myself. Right. And then I get to go out and coach and, and practice it. And, you know, my, the kids are, are my, uh, my test tube. And sometimes the experiments fail horribly and sometimes, you know, they're, you know, it goes great. And kids are like, how's a great practice coach. I'm like, yeah, made that one up myself. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. Very good. Um, That's something that I'd, I'd be curious to know if you talk about because as coaches, we can definitely get caught in that ego space and making it about us. But how do we make sure that we we remember why we're actually doing it? Yeah, I mean, and then they can go day to day, week to week, right? Practice to practice. I mean, within the same practice, you can get caught up in your ego and then, you know, kick yourself in the pants and pull back and let the kids be kids. And it's been amazing again, this last year because of COVID and kids not going to school, you know, the sport was often their only social outlet. It was the only thing they were allowed to do for some kids. It was the only time they got together with anyone else. And so it was so important. And to realize that as a coach that today we might accomplish a little bit less from a technical or tactical standpoint, because these kids just need to run around and, and play and see each other. And now that they're back in school, but it was virtual, right? And now they've just stared at a computer screen for seven hours and they just need to run around, <laughs> you know? And, and so that's the thing, right? I, I wouldn't have, I think I've been so much more understanding of who's in front of me this year than I would have been 20 years ago. Um, and so I guess one of the biggest things that we try to do at Change the Game Project is, just get people to see that a little sooner, right? Like focus on, you know, what are the things that I wish someone taught me before I coached my first team um, so that we can teach that to 
today's new coaches instead of hoping they figure it out themselves. <laughs> yeah. To me, that's what coaching is all about. It's, it's finding a way to learn things that one, you may never find out otherwise, but also speeding up the process of development at whatever stage you're at. So resources like what you're providing now for people is invaluable. Is there anything that you've read yourself or anything that you've come across in your coaching that you made part of what you do because it was just so powerful? Oh, I mean, tons, tons, you know. Um, I mean, in the last couple of years, last couple of years, you know, uh, David Epstein has written a couple of books, The Sports Gene and uh, Range, you know, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World, unbelievable book. Um, uh, Dan Coyle, I'm a big fan of his work and uh, The Culture Code, which just came out a couple of years ago, was great. This past year, I, I took a deep dive into sort of language and feedback and um, how powerful that is. And so a guy named Nick Winkleman has a great book called The Language of Coaching. Stephen Rolnick, uh, Motivational Interviewing in Sports. Um, and then the last book I read was uh, Doug Lamoff's book, The Coach's Guide to Teaching, which is really fantastic. And he's a teacher educator, but he also start, has started to work in sport. And he said, right, if we're supposed to be teaching something, then shouldn't we understand what teachers do in terms of how do people learn, Right. Uh, how to create a culture in our classroom, how to give feedback, how to check for understanding, um, you know, the, the difference between performance and learning, decision-making and problem-solving, all these sort of things that are just, it was one of those books, when I first got the book from Doug, I, I was like, I was like, why are your margins so big? And then I realized it was to take notes. <laughs> and you scribbled all the way through. Oh, it's, it's all, it's all, it's all, it's it's right here on, on my desk, all full of notes. So Brilliant. so I'm not lying. Yeah, yeah, nice. So we've talked about a lot of different things. What's what's the main message that you'd leave, like to leave with parents, coaches, potential coaches about the most important things to pass on to the children that you're coaching? You know. I think the best way to to say it, and I always think of, well, if I said it this way or that way, but this is the way that I sign off every podcast, which is your influence is never neutral, right? It's always positive or negative. You always have influence, whether you're a parent, whether you're a coach. Um, and the more aware you are of your influence, the stronger it is. And so... I spent a lot of time going through my career thinking I didn't influence anyone. And luckily I was raised by good parents and had some morals and whatever. And people years later in my life came back and said, thanks for being such a great influence on me. And it wasn't intentional. It was by accident, but thankfully, cause I had good parents, but um, in, in coaching um, I, I think we have to realize that, you know, we, I, I think it's Billy Graham, the preacher said a coach can influence more people in one season and most people get to influence in their life. So, um, wield it wisely. That's what I would say. 
I, I love that. I'm, I'm writing that one down for sure. Your influence is never neutral. Fantastic. John, thank you so much for coming to chat with me. I've loved it. It's a, an area that I'm passionate about and I'm, I'm so appreciative to have met you those years back and, and been able to learn so much about what you do. I'm looking forward to seeing what's coming next because I know you will have uh, new, bigger and better things coming. Yeah, thank you. Professional fly fisherman. There you go. <laughs> and Ian, thanks to you for having me on and, and congrats on everything you've done because we started this journey at a similar place many years ago and I've enjoyed watching your business and your influence grow in such a positive way. And so it's been great to reconnect here today as well. Absolutely. Thank you very much, John. I appreciate that. Yep. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grief Code podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please share it with a friend or family member that you know would benefit from hearing it too. If you are truly ready to heal your unresolved or unknown grief, let's chat. Email me at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com. You can also stay connected with me by joining the Grief Code community at ianhawkinscoaching.com forward slash the grief code. And remember, so that I can help even more people to heal, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform.